Welcome back to Gulf Force Side Effects. I'm your host, Kevin Simon. I want to introduce to y'all Roy Selstrom. He's in the British Army during Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I want to welcome him to the program. And he has a fascinating story about how their VA system works and how our VA system works and what he did over there. Welcome to the show, Roy. Roy, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Kevin. And thanks for the invitation. Uh, you know, it's quite nice reaching out and, and listening to your podcasts and, you know, and realizing that, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing all different from us. I mean, uh, you know, the Americans going off to, you know, the uh, Desert Storm and Desert Shield, whereas ours was Operation Granby. So we, we call them slightly different. And uh, uh, Granby was some general from the 17th century, I think, or 18th century. So the British Army go through a lot of, you know, coming up with some weird and wonderful names for when we deploy in operations. Uh, so, yeah, it can get quite confusing sometimes when you say your operation and we say ours. But, no, it's great coming on. And, uh, you know, I've been looking forward to, you know, having a chat. Hello, I've been looking forward to this chat for a while because, you, you know, let everybody know what you did while you were in the service over there, where you were at, and and that stuff, and and then I, I then we'll go into a little bit of what's going on with y'all over there as far as y'all's illnesses and everything going on. So, yeah, I uh, I, I was in in the British Army. I, I joined up in uh, what you would call the National Guard, whereas in Britain it was the Territorial Army. I, I joined that in nineteen eighty two. Uh, I joined the uh, 58th Battalion, the King's Regiment. I then got a chance in 1985 to, to uh, get attached to the 1st Battalion, which is a regular battalion. So I went off and joined the mortar platoon, uh, was what my job was in the infantry. And then in 1985, I, I enjoyed it that much. I uh, resigned from that and joined the regular army. I went into the Royal Pioneer Corps. Uh, we did a multiple of jobs, but it, the, the Pioneers within the British Army, the Royal Pioneer Corps, was a labouring unit. We we originated in the First World War to do a lot of the trenches and roads and, believe it or not, latrines and tents is what we originally were set up for. And it was mostly infantrymen what were injured in the First World War, so they couldn't carry on the job being in the front line. Uh, and then we, we were reformed in the Second World War to do the same taskings and more. So when we got to the... Uh, you know, round about the period of the Gulf War, we were doing mostly the same taskings as what we've done traditionally throughout the 20th century. Uh, but one of them we picked up from the Second World War, which was only a war. Uh, it only came out and they dusted off the fire next time we went to war, was the grave registration uh, side of it, which I believe you Americans call uh, Motri Affairs. So for us, it's grave registration or the British Army. Uh, grave registration service. Uh, people confuse it with the Commonwealth War Graves. You know, we're not. We we are sir, we are infantrymen within the British Army. Uh, in comparison to the civilians who look after all the cemeteries all around the world from the First World War and Second World War. Uh, so our job was if a British serviceman or woman uh, was killed on operation, we would process the uh, the the body and then get it back to Britain. So deploying to Saudi Arabia, we were already informed that there was no British serviceman or woman going to be buried in the Muslim country. So 
you know, we were tasked to make sure the body was processed and sent back to the UK. Uh, we got there on uh, January. Uh, well, I deployed in January. The teams, some of the teams deployed in the uh, early December. My main regiment, because I was seconded to the Grey Registration, uh, my regiment had been out there since the October, early October. So there was a lot of pioneers already in theatre uh, doing the multiple of jobs, which I've described. Uh, however, ours was, we, there was a team of 34 of us which were going to process uh, any servicemen or women what was killed in action or, or killed in theatre. Uh, originally, we set up for 200 bodies a day. We, that's what we were looking at. Uh, we'd set up a morgue and we'd built 200 trestles so we could put the bodies on these trestles in a big refrigerated morgue in uh, Camp 4, which is Algebile. That's how much of them told us. If, if there were chemicals thrown around and servicemen and women were killed in any of the uh, armoured fighting vehicles or tanks, all we were going to do is big, dig a big hole, drag the vehicle in there and then pat the sand over it and leave it till another day. Uh, so we knew what we were uh, going to do from being in theatre. And then from, uh, from that, that's all we did. As soon as we got into theatre, I, uh, I literally went in. Uh, I was only there two or three days. Um, we had a fatality, which we, we went down and picked up. So any of the fatalities, what we had would, you know, they would end up at some field hospital somewhere. Uh, so we would then be dispatched. We would pick them up, bring them back, and bring them back to Camp 4, take them into the morgue, uh, clean them up if they needed cleaning, uh, put them in a coffin. The welder would come in and uh, welder it down because they, he, if you bring a body back into Britain from abroad, it has to come in in a, in a Z-line coffin and then it goes straight to the coroner. Uh, so that's what we'd be doing uh, within that, that, you know, bringing the body back to the UK. Uh, and as I said, I'd, I'd only been out there a couple of days when we had a fatality. Uh, and we went to pick him up. Uh, it was a young officer who had been killed in a, a road traffic accident with a, an armoured vehicle, which had uh, gone down on the verge and flipped over. Uh, so he was killed in that incident. Uh, and that, that was... What we did up to the beginning of the land war, we had processed about 23 British servicemen and women. Well, it was actually servicemen that had been killed up to that point. Uh, up until the, the air war starting on the 16th of January, uh, we didn't have any of the RAF pilots up to that point, although we knew they'd gone missing and there was a, uh, an expectation they, they had been killed because they'd not been informed they were prisoners of war. Uh, so they knew they were out in the desert somewhere. It was just a case of, you know, finding them and bringing them back, and then we would end up with them and process them and get them back to the UK. So early January, I got there on the 2nd of January, and on the 4th of January was when I first got my first injections, which was anthrax, uh, the plague. We, as soon as we got there, we started taking uh, what we call naps. I believe you call it different, but we call it naps with the pre uh, nerve agent pre-treatment, which is your blister packs, and you had 21 tablets in it. P and you had to take one of them every, every eight hours. But people forget, on top of that each day, we'd all be taking our malaria tablets. You know, they were constantly walking around the camp with swing fog, which is to keep the, you know, the, the inferior, the mosquitoes down. So even before we went up on the land war and seen anything else, you're already, you know, getting, your body's already getting introduced to, uh, chemical uh, chemical 
you know, effects or toxic effects, whichever. Even before I deployed to Saudi Arabia, I'd already started getting injections in the UK. Uh, I, I got a dose of uh, cholera. I had three doses of cholera in, in the September. Uh, I then had one called Multivac, I think, which is, I don't know what that one was, but we were injected with that. Uh, they made sure all our boosters were up to date before we deployed. And then, like I said, and then as soon as I got into theatre, we there were just big queues at uh, Camp 4. And you were then asked, a piece of paper came along saying this injection is top secret. Uh, if you've got any concerns, ask the doctor. And I can remember, I, I was a young Lance Corporal. I can remember getting to the doctor and saying, I've got concerns about this, what you're giving us. Uh, you know, my concern is what's going to happen in about 10 or 15 years when my testicles shrink up and, right you know and i uh, you know what i mean and I'm, I'm probably dying or something and i remember she was a female doctor in the royal army medical corps and she turned around and said do you want the effing injection or not and that that was basically what she said do you want this fucker or not because if you don't want it go back to your unit and you know that's what you're not looking for that information you you, you know you've got a concern and it was perfectly reasonable to ask Especially when someone's giving you a, a you know a clipboard with this instruction saying this is top secret, uh, this is what will happen if you don't accept the the uh, the injection. Uh, you know what from you'll be the last one to be treated after everyone else has been treated. You know, so when you're reading this information, you're thinking, what the bloody hell are they giving us? And uh, so you know, and you get there and you ask that perfect reasonable question as you know what you're going to give me, and then get told to you know, fuck off, basically. So, you know, you're on the back foot then and everyone else is just walking along going, yeah, stick it in that arm, then stick the, you know, the siliquine or the other crap in the other arm. And and you just sat there feeling actually alienated. So you just think, you know, bollocks to it. Everyone else is having it. I'll just jump in the queue and get it. Uh, you know what I mean? So I, I felt there was some pressure there about, you know, what we were getting but no one said what it was. And especially when you start using words like anthrax and, you know, you'd, you'd seen all these films, what they'd shown us from the 1950s, where they'd, they'd sprayed anthrax on a sheet and they shown us how fast anthrax can kill you. And oh, then yeah. they're saying, by the way, you're going to get, a, a, a you know, an anthrax injection. And you're thinking in your own mind, wait a sec, I've just seen that video for my training to come out here for nuclear, biological, chemical warfare. And I've just... You know, that, that sheep died within nine seconds and you, you're injecting me with this crap. And, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it, 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 your anxiety was up that initially, uh, you know, on that. And then I had the second dose of the anthrax and the plague and all that crap at the end of January because I've still got my uh, vaccination card with all that information on. So I knew the dates and the times and the batch numbers of each injection, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what we had. Okay. And I was, and I've still got, sorry. No, no, no. I've still got my, yeah, I've still got my medical documents. And it, it turned around there and said, you know, I, I had blue type symptoms. You know what I mean? And so that's from 19, that's from January 1991. And on my medical notes there, it's got, he's gone sick and he feels he's got flu type symptoms. You know what I mean? So you can see that already. And I can remember they stopped it, De Billier, who was the commander of the British Armed Forces, deployed in the Gulf. Uh, the order came through, not I don't necessarily from him, but probably his staff, that they stopped, they put a halt on the injections because there was that many servicemen and women feeling ill 
uh, with stiff arms because, you know, you can remember, I'm sure most of the listeners can remember that, you couldn't move your arm. I mean, your arm was absolutely dead and sore for about 24 hours. You know, you, you, if you didn't have that, you, you had these flu-type symptoms, uh, you know, you just felt sick. Uh, so they stopped giving it half of the group. So half of the team would have it one day, and then the next day, the other half of the team would have it. So they, that was the, what happened on the later, the second dose we had in the end of January. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was a it was in miss. But, you know, remember, we, we deployed to a war and a war footing. So, you know, everything else was going on within this environment. And we weren't training. You know what I mean? We weren't training. We were doing it. As soon as we deployed, we went into our operational role. Whereas, you know, the rest of the British Army uh, were, were doing lots of training, lots of shooting on the ranges, lots of armoured uh, section attacks, platoon attacks, company attacks, uh, working around how they're going to deploy their armoured vehicles. Whereas you've got this little team of 34 of you what are doing the job constantly. Uh, you know, as soon as you get out there, we, we average about one British serviceman killed every two and a half days, roughly. Uh, so there was a team deployed Rather down, rather down to Riyadh or up to the front line, which you called the where the MSR was, uh, up to the you know the forward line where most of the British Army were deployed. You were up and down there, which from Al Jabail was about, uh, if I if I remember rightly, and I might be slightly wrong with this, was about three and a half to four hour drive up to the top end of the MSR where the British Army was deployed. Uh, so you were driving up there. So an average day to go and pick a, just to get up there. You've then got to find which camp is on or what, where he is if he's been killed, then collect him, and then you have to make the decision, you know, are we going to stay up here for the night or are we going to drive back down to Al Jabail and take him down there tomorrow? Uh, and, they, and the transit coffins do not fit in a British Land Rover. So the long wheel-based Land Rover, the transit coffin, which is about seven foot long, does not fit in the back of that. So when you put the body in, you had to turn the box on its side. You know what I mean? So you couldn't put the box down. You had to turn the box on its side. So And then there was no room at all for you to sit in the back. So you've got your legs draping over the coffin. Uh, and then the other way, I mean, there was a few times where I slept with a dead body for the night because wow. we'd gone up there and given a, 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 you know, a, a body bag. So he'd be in the back of the wagon with us. Because uh, we, we, you know, if we had the transit coffins, we'd go up with them. But if we didn't have them, you would go up there and, uh, you know, retrieve the body from wherever he was uh, and put him in the back of the four tonner with you, which is a uh, four ton Bedford, which is one of the big, uh, you can fit about, I think you can fit about 12 or 15 soldiers in the back. You know what I mean? And that was our utility wagon. So, but that, that's what we were issued, them and Land Rovers. And, uh, so you didn't have a transit coffin. The body was in the back of you. Uh, so, you know, you're sleeping in the back of them because you've made the decision not to come back from the front line all the way back to Al Jabail. So, yeah, I mean, there was once or twice where we ended up sleeping next to the dead body. Not, you know, literally within close proximity, not, you know, there in one tent and you're half a mile down the road, which would have been ideal. You know, the, the so, yeah, we had some grim nights, to be honest, which was probably not any different from... I suspect your mortuary affair teams were doing the same job. Right, right. And see, now, when me and you were talking, your VA and our VA is a little bit different, especially how they pay out and all that stuff. So 
are, are you having neuropathy problems, digestive system, like a lot of, like what a lot of us are having over here? What, what are your symptoms and how is your VA handling it? Yeah, I, uh, they don't recognize uh, Gulf War syndrome. They've still not recognized it. Uh, you can have, if you believe your conditions originated from the first Gulf, you can have what they call Gulf War umbrella terminology. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine an umbrella opened up. They will put any of your conditions, what have been attri attributed to your service, under that umbrella. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it's just a word terminology. You don't get anything more from that. Uh, I mean, ours, I'm not sure about the American, ours is called Veterans UK. Uh, that's its name for UK. It's not, you know, the Veterans Agency and anything like that. I mean, since I came out, I came out of the army in 2006. I was uh, I was diagnosed uh, quite fast with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I knew I was ill actually at the end of the Gulf War. I went off and saw a forward psychiatric team because I just couldn't control my emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I dealt with that many dead bodies to that point and seen actually every way a serviceman or woman can be killed. Uh, you know, whether it was British, Allied, or Iraqi that I was just mentally and physically ill. Uh, so I got diagnosed. Uh, I, I saw a forward psychiatric team in theatre. Uh, I then was informed that as soon as I got back, I was deploying back to Northern Ireland. So I'd already been out in Northern Ireland before the Gulf. And then they, they, they literally turned around and it was like, if you're ill, come forward, we'll look after you. Well, I came forward and it felt like a punishment and they sent me to Northern Ireland. So they knew I was mentally ill and they deployed me as an infantryman back to Northern Ireland. So you're, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, whatever the American, uh, you know, your opinions on Northern Ireland, it was still part of Great Britain. And the British troops had been deployed there since 1969 doing peacekeeping operations. Uh, it was pretty rough sometimes. You know what I mean? The, the uh, Irish Republican Army or, or the Protestant terrorist groups, they were very extremely very active. British servicemen were losing their lives out there. Uh, so I deployed back out there ill. You know what I mean? I was I had all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, although I hadn't been diagnosed with that at that point. There's a good chance earlier on I probably just had a stress reaction to working in the Gulf. Uh, this is before any of the, the, the Gulf uh, symptoms, the Gulf illness started uh, appearing. So I, the, the first one I had was post-traumatic stress disorder. I then ended up in a psychiatric ward. I had a breakdown as a young NCO uh, in Northern Ireland. They brought me back from Northern Ireland to the uh, to Queen Elizabeth Military Hospital, which is based in Woolwich, London. I ended up there with, in the psychiatric ward, uh, which is pretty rough, to be honest, because, you know, when you're feeling mad, and I'm sure, you know, some of the guys will understand, you're feeling mad and it's all up there. You wow. can't control what's going on in your head, and it's so frightening. It's extremely frightening that you feel it sounds, you know, it sounds mad, but you feel you're going mad because you've got no control over your bodily emotions. So you're just crying when you're talking to people. You're, you know, you have headaches all the time. Your 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 anxiety is going through the roof. And I all I wanted to do was serve in the British Army. You know what I mean? So I I'll be honest with you, you they ask you all sorts of questions and you think to yourself, if I tell them exactly what's going in my head, they will lock the door in a padded room and leave me. Uh, because, you know, uh, psychiatric hospitals in Britain didn't have a good name. I'm sure they 
probably not another one in America. But in, in our, uh, in Britain, it was like a Victorian institute. All these hospitals were, you know, were still Victorian. They'd been built in the late 1800s. So, you know, you've got these Gothic hospitals where you lock people up for mental illness. And, you know, I'm a young NCO in the British Army, and that's all I'm thinking, that's what's going to happen to me. Right. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sat in this psychiatric ward thinking, you know, I'm, I'm literally going mad. Uh, I then got out of there. Uh, I went in this September. I came out in the early January, so I didn't have to stay there anymore. Uh, I got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder in the September of 1991. Doing that second tour of Northern Ireland didn't help at all. Uh, you know, I should have been having rest and being looked over and doing lots of therapy, not being sent to Northern Ireland as a punishment is what I saw it. Uh, you know, and, and I came out of there. Uh, I, I'd already trained as a dog handler. One of our trades within the uh, British Army is a dog handler. Uh, I, a posting came up for uh, being a dog handler in Cyprus. So I put my paperwork in to go there and I, I got it. Uh, me and my wife moved across to Cyprus and I didn't realise at the time, you know, we talk about triggers. Uh, right. with, you know, with people with post-traumatic stress disorder, we talk about triggers. Sending me out to a hot country was probably not the best place to send me. And then put me back into desert uniform because in Cyprus, you're, you know, one part of your uniform was desert combat. So to send me after getting out in a sense, which was, you know, it was done for all the right reasons, but the, you know, the, the, the impact and the, you know, it was just, to me, I realised I'd been going back out there, triggered me off. Uh, it was great working with the dogs, but, you know, I lasted out there 12 months, uh, the, the, the thing I noticed there was I started getting, I, I've never smoked, I started getting really bad acid reflux, you know, where you, you it literally starts here and it's coming back up into your, you know, into your mouth that anyone who's, who's got, uh, I, you know, it's probably G-O-R-D, God. Uh, but at the time, I didn't know what it was. And, and in Britain, you can take Rennies. Uh, so I was buying Rennies because I just thought it was me. I didn't realise that. You know, that was the first symptom uh, I started getting because, you know, I was an extremely fit man. I was running all the time. I was doing everything I did, uh, you know, as, as being part of the British Army. Uh, I then noticed all these lumps started appearing all over my body. All, all these, some of them was as big as eggs. Uh, and I had one on my head. Uh, I couldn't wear my British Army helmet uh, because the, 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 the inner just wouldn't sit on my head because of this big lump. Uh, this big sort of like egg-shaped lump on the top of my head. But I had them all over my body. Uh, you know, I was getting them all over my body. I have them under my rib cage. I had them in my groin area, the back of my legs, the front of my thighs. I have them on my arms. And that was the second thing what started appearing uh, after coming back from the Gulf. They cut the first one out on the top of my head. And I think over the years, while I was still in the army, they, they, they actually cut a few out to make sure they weren't cancerous or, or whatever. Uh, you know, and I, I think they were just uh, lipomas or, you know, uh, a cyst. They were one or the right. other. Uh, but literally, they, they came out, as soon as I deployed to Cyprus, is it, you know, that, that's what started appearing with the acid. Uh, you know, and then the next condition I realised I was getting was uh, the sensation in my arms and hands. But, you know, you, I'm sure a lot of us, we just put it down to, just being normal, you know what I mean? You just get on with your, your job and, you, you know, your arms are hurting all the time and you, your hands, you're losing, pin, uh, 
you're getting pinpricks in your hands and you you yeah. lose your sensation. Uh, you know, so I, I I noticed that although I didn't do anything about it, uh, and uh, so that would probably be about the, the the third thing I started noticing. Uh, you know, of these changes, which you know any of the, the veterans know that that you know these are all probably precursors of Gulf War syndrome. Now, you know, with Einstein, Einstein's a great thing, but you know, at the time I was, uh, you know, a young NCO, I'd been promoted to corporal. Uh, I came back to the United Kingdom. I was still running, but my knees were killing all the time. My my joints were killing uh, more so in in winter than than in the summer months. But I was, uh, you know, I, I was doing half marathons. I was uh, still, you know, extremely fit. And I think looking back now and listening to some of the conversations on, you know, the American Gulf sites, Gulf War sites, is. You know, a lot of the guys turn around and say, keep fit. You know, don't put any weight on, keep fit. And I suspect that's what probably kept these serious conditions off, was I was running and being quite fit, uh, you know, carrying it on, although I was getting more lethargic with it, you know, and I was feeling tired, uh, you know, not realising. But you don't, you know, as an infant in the British Army, you don't go sick. That, that is a no-no. You just don't go sick. Right. Uh, it was only the sick, lame and lazy, what, you know, that stigmatisation of if you go sick, you're just sick, lame and lazy. Uh, you know, which is when you look back is, you know, if that were, if that's imposed on you, you, you know, it's not forced, but that's, you know, that you can hear people talking about it. You can hear NCOs and two sergeants and, and you, you look down on people who are going sick all the time. So you stay away from a medical centre. You, you, you know, it's, some, it's not somewhere where you are frequent all the time. And you know, at that point in my life, I was still quite fit. Uh, you know, I, I was keeping the weight off. Uh, I, I was, like I said, being running, uh, going out doing battle PT. Uh, but I was, you know, I, 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 I knew there was something wrong with me. Uh, right. We got to, you know, we got to in the middle of the 90s. And, uh, it, you know, I think that's when it erupted and I was keeping an eye on what was going on because uh, I did have concerns. I'd served in the Gulf. I'd, uh, you know, served in Northern Ireland, but it, it was all these rumours what were coming out about servicemen's medical files going missing from the Gulf. Or, you know, and then there was a, you were hearing about these veterans what were fighting the government because they were saying they were ill from the Gulf. And you're sat there, you know, as a British serviceman still serving, thinking, what's going on? And, and, and around you, you know, people who hadn't deployed to the Gulf, you know, were talking and, and being disparaging about them, saying, ah, oh, the wounded insults are only after the compensation. You know, what, what, what they're talking about, there's nothing wrong with them because the government were doing a good job of, you know, just not even questioning or not even arguing over what was going wrong. Uh, so if a British serviceman, you, you can't, at the time, you couldn't put them for compensation until you came out of the British Army. Uh, we have a system called a war pension. Uh, it's not to do with war, that's just terminology. You, you can be playing sport and get injured. Uh, and all it means is that, you know, was you in the British Army at the time when you were injured? Uh, yes. Uh, what was you doing? So they would ask you the incident. So if you said it was originated from the Gulf, you would put that down. But if you said you were playing uh, football or rugby or, you know, you were doing an activity for, your unit, that would go down, and the name of it said war pension. Uh, so you can only claim it once you come out of the British Army. 
they don't tell you about it. So you can go for years not even realising you could have put a claim in for a war pension. Uh, but the strange thing about it is it, 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 the act, what's in, is from 1943. So, you know, when you get your war pension, the writing on the top will be, it's like a roll warrant. So it's not governed by Parliament because most of the benefits in Britain are governed by Parliament. A roll warrant is signed by the Queen. Uh, so she signs it off. So if they've got to change it, it has to go to the Queen, not Parliament. So our normal benefit system in Britain can be messed around week on and week out by the government. And they can change the benefits quite fast. They can't change the war pension system. And it was signed off by the Queen's dad, George V, or George VI, whichever, in 1943, when we were fighting a, a major war with you know, America's being our eyes. And it stayed in since then. And it, it gives you pounds and pence. It starts up, uh, you get a gratuity. So from uh, 1 to 19% would be a one-off payment. Uh, and then you get 20%. That gives you a monthly or a weekly. Or it's a weekly payment and you're giving it over 28 days. So at 20%, and I'm probably wrong, when I first came out, medically discharged in 2006, uh, the war pension was £27.20 a week. Wow. And, uh, and I had post-match stress disorder, arthritis of the knees, uh, bilateral knee pain syndrome, which is, you know, that's the pain what you get with the arthritis, because right. some people don't have pain with arthritis, whereas, you know, they, they, they split them. If you've got pain, that is a separate condition from the arthritis. Uh, and gourd, uh, astral reflux. And, and, but round about 98, I noticed that I was constantly shitting myself with diarrhea. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, I'd gone sick with it in 2000 and been diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, so I was in 2000, I'd be in my mid-30s by then. So nationally, people don't start getting in this country irritable bowel syndrome. So they're probably in the mid 40s to 50s. Right. So I'm, you know, a lot of the time of the conditions I were getting were years in advance as what people would normally get in this country. Uh, so I, I'm getting all these conditions and getting them uh, diagnosed while I'm in the army. Uh, but then, like I said, the over the years the triggers just kept popping up. Uh, and like I said, I apologize if I'm going back and forward. No, it's uh, fine. It's fine. I want I want everybody to understand that. I mean, everybody who's li listened to this now that have been in a desert storm and in, in Desert Shield, even when they listen over and over on the podcast, they're going to understand exactly the symptoms you're talking about. Everything that's going yeah. on, and and. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, just like anyone, I, I was in denial for a long time. Even when I knew there was veterans out there what were fighting for this so-called Gulf War syndrome, uh, as we call it in Britain, you know, I was still in denial to myself. So I self-stigmatized myself because I was still a regular serviceman going off. I mean, I, I came back from Northern Ireland. Uh, went to Cyprus, came back from Cyprus, went down to the Falklands, went to Belize in Central America, uh, did an exercise around Britain, and then I deployed to my first tour of Croatia, uh, which was the old former Yugoslavia. I deployed out there. Uh, we did a couple of weeks, couple of months out in Croatia. 
we then changed and became uh, NATO because originally it was United Nations when I deployed. We then swapped over halfway through and uh, swapped into NATO and put our own regimental berries back on and regimental cat badges and deployed into Bosnia. So I did Croatia and then into Bosnia, uh, which would take me to about 96. And, uh, you know, and I was coming back and the triggers from the PTSD, although I, I didn't understand them, and sometimes I would get triggered and I wouldn't understand it maybe for about five or six weeks. So by then I'm drinking heavily, I'm getting it really irritable, extremely angry, I'm a, you know, and I'm, I'm a corporal, which is a, a section commander in the British Army. Uh, I'm getting triggered, I'm, I'm fighting these, and it would take me about five, possibly you know, maybe a month to five, six weeks before I've realised I've been triggered off with my post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and I still not figured out what the trigger was. So I'd have to consciously think back to what I'd been doing for the last month or so to see if I'd done anything which I could recognise what I'd been exposed to in the Gulf. Uh, you know, and, and so that's the only way I could figure out. And once I found the trigger, that's the way I could then process it and probably get myself better again. Uh, because I was probably one of the first servicemen within my regiment, what was only going around with post-traumatic stress disorder. So people would ask me how it affects me. And, you know, let's be honest, we've been fighting in Northern Ireland for donkey's years. So guys were coming back from Northern Ireland with post-traumatic stress disorder, but it was only uh, the early 90s when the British Army conned on to the expression, started using it and diagnosing their servicemen. And most of them were offered the door. You know, what you're serving in the British Army for, you'll find it a lot easier in City Street. So most of them opted and went out the door, whereas I, I didn't have that option. You know, I wanted to stay in and actively serve my country because, you know, that's all you could... My wife used to say, if she chopped my head off, should have British Army right through my neck. Uh, you know, and that's what I was. I was married to the British Army first. My wife came second uh, because right. I was a, me, I was a professional soldier. Uh, and then, like I said, it, 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 the triggers were getting harder because I kept getting exposed. Uh, uh, and, and then these other conditions I was getting were, you know, trying to understand these conditions and just writing them off. And the thing is, you would get one one day. And that might give you problems for a week, like the irritable bowel. Then that would calm down, and then you'd get the acid. You know what I mean? And then you that would calm down. Then you'd be, then you'd get the aching joints. Then that would calm down, and then you, it was like a vicious circle because you get through it, and then you, 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 when your mind processes it, then you'd realise, well, actually, my joints are hurting again. Well, actually, my acid's really bad, and I used to get acid that bad. Whereas I couldn't have anything to eat or drink in the morning when I got out. You know what I mean? Because whether I had a glass of water, the acid would burn my throat all the way up and get in my mouth. Uh, and, you know, and, and so I couldn't have anything until about 11 o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock when it, when it calmed down. Uh, and then I could then start having, you know, warm drinks, coffee or tea or, or you know, or food. Because up until then, if I had anything it literally would just come back up like sick and end up in your mouth and it would be burning all the way through. That was what was worse about it. Uh, and no one did anything, but, you know, I, I didn't, it, I just thought it was normal. And 
So I was taking these blockers, as in Rennie. Uh, I then switched to Gaviscon, uh, you know, which is a more of a syrupy side of antiacid tablets, uh, as in a liquid. So I then started taking that, but I was drinking a bottle of it a week. So I'd probably have near enough, what you probably less than a litre, and I'd be drinking about a litre of that each week uh, just to stop the acid, uh, you know, and then I'd be taking Imodium to stop the, 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 the diarrhoea, just to keep the diarrhoea in control. Because I, I, I used to say to the doctor, I can't remember the last time I'd had a normal shit. Right. As in an arch. Right. You know, I, mean, I, just don't, I just couldn't recall for years all I was doing every time I went to the toilet. And, you know, when, when you've got irritable bowel, I was probably going to the toilet six, seven, eight times. And although I'd shit everything out of me, my ass would be twitching. You know, my ring piece, as we call it here, <laughs> would still be twitching because there was nothing in there. You know right. what I mean? And, right. And, and, yeah, so, <laughs> and that's what yeah. that's what a lot of us go for, best have gone through. Like, like there's a question on here: How many other countries were in during Desert Storm? How many do you think? Oh, God, eleven. Well, I mean, you had Norway, Denmark, uh, from Europe, Norway, Denmark, France, Italy. Uh, so there's you know there's four off the top of my head. Uh, United you know, I, United I, I States, Israel, Russia. I remember seeing Russian yeah. troops out there. Yeah. No, um, you had quite, I think there was 27 in total. To maybe. Okay, yeah, about 20, I, I 27. Think I think there's a coalition of about 27 because Qatar, United Arab Emirates, yeah. uh, Pakistan, you know, you had quite a few Muslim countries what deployed troops out to Saudi Arabia. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was probably the last war. It was probably one of the first wars what it was the United Nations, you know, rather than a western orientated. You know, United Nations for Korean War. It was probably the first war where actually the, you know, the Arabic Muslim-speaking world and the Western-speaking world came together, uh, you know, to fight a common common enemy. Uh, you know, as in Saddam Hussein, uh, what he was doing out in that part of the world. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it was quite difficult. But on on the war pension side, yeah, you start off at twenty percent, right. then it goes in graduals of ten percent. So if you get a 5% condition, uh, you won't get anything for that. It's if you get two of them. So if you got two 5%, that would make 10. So you would get that. So you'd go in increments of 10%. Uh, and it's a battle. They, they won't, you know, they won't give it you. But what's, what's strange because of the way the war pension system was set up from the Second World War, if you got something like 60%, so if you had a combination of post-traumatic stress disorder, irritable bowel syndrome, arthritis, uh, acid reflux, that could give you a combination of maybe 30 or 40%. Well, you could be meeting a bloke who had his arm blown off. So he had a stump. So he's, he's lost all his arm, and he might be on 40%. What? You know what I mean? Yeah, there was no difference. There was no difference at all. You were both on the same percentages, and there would be tariffs of 10%. But the conditions were all thrown in then. You, it went off when you put your uh, forms in for, because uh, it is compensation. It's what they call a non-at-fault compensation. So it leaves the door open for you to sue the Ministry of Defence, if you wish. But, you, you know, trying to sue the Ministry of Defence when you've got no money 
It's right. extremely difficult. You know, right. it really is hard to try and sue the government because the Ministry of Defence is an elected part of the government. Uh, you know what I mean? So trying to sue them, you've got two hopes. So, and most guys or girls didn't know there was this compensation out there. And it's uh, and there's two parts of it. The first thing you've got is you've got to win the entitlement. And the only way you get the entitlement is to them, you've got to have served in the British Army. So there's an entitlement part first. And if they don't feel you're entitled, God knows why, but if they didn't feel you were entitled, you fought that battle first. And then the second part of it is the assessment. So you win the entitlement by being in the British Army. And then the doctors, they send all your documentation. So I got 20% for post-traumatic stress disorder, irritable bowel, arthritis, and acid reflux. But, 27 quid a week. But nothing for the rashes, nothing for the... the... Yeah, I had rashes. I'd not even claimed for them. I had, I, I, I had rashes right through my hair, which I still have today, right from the back of my head. It's like a fawn uh, of reeves goes around the back of your head. It stops where my ears are. But it goes from the back of my ears all the way back of my neck. And I've had them for years. I get every now and again, I get a rash, like a spotty rash, hitchy rash on my top torso. But on my legs, on my calves, I'll just get a little blotch of about that big on the same area, which I've had for donkey's years. And it will come and then it will disappear. And it will come. But it's in exactly the same spot every time it turns up and then it will disappear. Uh, but the, the the rash in the back of my hairline is you're scratching at it, it's pulp, it's scabby. Uh, you know what I mean? I get medication from the doctors. That's my dosset pack, they call them in Britain. Uh, and all it is is just all these tablets per each day. Uh, there's my painkillers. I've just swapped them to uh, Tramadol because I... I, I I can't do morphine because one of the side effects I have is constipation. So I'm sure a lot of your guys will realise having irritable bowel and then having constipation. You're right. going from one to the other. <laughs> so you're having the shit one day and then you're shitting a brick the next day. You know what I mean? And there's no in between. There's no, you know, you sit there and think, oh, I've just had a lovely shit. And people don't understand <laughs> what I mean by that. You know what I mean? And, and you know, when your belly gets sorted and you can actually just, sit on the crapper and go, you know, thank God for that. Because other other than that, you're, you know, you, you nearly have got tears down your eyes because you, right. you know, you're giving birth to a brick or, you know, you're shitting yourself to death. And then I have uh, eye briefing, which I get from the chest. They're not sure what my chest ailment is. You know, it's not asthma. They keep giving me asthma things, but it's not asthma. They've done tests on it. I got it from, uh, I picked it up. They, they used to give me tests in the army. Uh, so individually, all these conditions I already had before I left the army. You know what I mean? And all these conditions were there before I left, i.e. the arthritis, most of your joints. Uh, you know, from my feet upwards, I've got arthritis in my feet. I've got arthritis in my uh, ankles. I've got arthritis in my knees. So I've got it in most of my joints. Uh, you know, and then I've got this band of... Uh, it's like a tight pain. So anyone would say, you know, if you did first aid training, it'd be like angina or a chest condition, heart attack. Well, that's what it feels like for me. And I had it for about two years. And, you know, being a bloke, you don't go sick. I just right. kept quiet about it. I just said, uh, and then I, I, I went and seen the army doctor and said to him, 
uh, have you got anything else? And I went, yeah, I get this really bad chest sometimes and it gets me in the jaw. And at the time, I didn't realise one of the uh, one of the symptoms of having a heart attack is in your jaw. Right. Uh, and I said, I get, uh, you know, and, it, it, and then it either goes in your arm, left arm or right arm. And I actually said, I also get it in my arm. I just feel, you know, I can't feel any sensation in my arm. And I went from there straight to the uh, the cardio ward in Friendly Park Hospital, which is down the road from me. Uh, they put me on a running machine. I don't necessarily think a running machine is probably the best idea for someone who's having an allegedly heart attack. But anyway, they strapped me up to all these monitors. And the outcome was that there was nothing wrong with me. Uh, you know what I mean? Because I've never smoked. Uh, I was a heavy drink when I used to get triggered off. But, uh, you know, but other than that, I was extremely fit. But so they couldn't figure out what was going on with my chest and it'd come and it would go and it'd come and it'd go. Uh, so now they give me uh, ibuprofen, which I spread all over my chest area when I get it. Uh, I used to get it and then it'd disappear. Uh, over the years, it'd turn up, then it'd disappear, and then it'd turn up and disappear. Uh, whereas now I find I'm getting it more. So I'm getting it in the summer and the winter. Uh, so they're not sure. And then I have uh, this for dry eye. Uh, I have to squeeze this in because the the opticians uh, yeah. at the hospital specialist has turned around and said, I'm I've supposed to be taking eye. the same thing. Yeah, I'm supposed to be taking yeah. the same yeah. thing, dry Mate, eye and everything. Yeah, and you get it. And it's like, it's very irritable and painful. It, it, uh, explain to the audience how y'all's healthcare system works in the VA, how some of it's free, oh, so some in, of it's in, not. In, yeah, in Britain, we've got the uh, what we call the National Health Scheme. Uh, you know, the, Brit the, the taxpayer paid for it after the end of the Second World War. They realised that, you know, they wanted some National Health Scheme and they brought in the National Health Scheme. You pay for it for your taxes. Uh, it's probably one of the biggest budgets what people pay for in this country. And it's, you know... It's something which the British public would not get away from. I mean, quite rightfully, it's very popular in Britain. So you don't have to pay for anything if you go into the NHS. So if you go to a hospital, you don't pay. Uh, you, you walk through the door and it's open to anyone. If, if an immigrant turned up tomorrow who got into the country, they could walk into our hospitals and get treated. And no one would say anything uh, at the point of contact, they call it. After that, if you get a secondary appointment, that's different. They then start checking everything. So they would check your national insurance number. We don't have insurance uh, normally in this country for just walking in the hospital. So you don't have to worry about any insurance schemes. Uh, so, yeah, the second appointment or the, the follow-up appointment, that would be different. But the initial appointment, regardless of what the illness or injury is or the, the, the wound or the sickness, the, the NHS will look after it. Uh, they, they encourage you to go and see your doctors. Uh, so you you normally get a doctor's appointment for any of the run of the mill, uh, anything like a cold or a flu type symptoms, anything like that. Uh, and your doctors would pick, normally pick it up. If they've got a concern, they send you to the, the hospital. So you don't pay for our healthcare in Britain. You can go private, but most people are, uh, you know, just use the, the normal system, what we've got. Uh, however, if you then start picking up medication, so... If, if I had to pay for this medication, that would be £9. That would be £9. So I briefing gel, you could probably pay from the shops in the chemist about two or £3. So yeah. they discourage you from, from having it. But if you got it through the system, that would be £9. 
that would be nine pounds and every one of them individual tablets in there would all be nine pounds so you can imagine if you're getting that on a month weekly and monthly right it's going to cost you a lot of money so as a veteran if you come forward and you report your injuries or illnesses or wounds you then uh, go through the system of the veterans agency you fill the paperwork in you send it off for them about two years later they'll come back to you and say because it takes hell of a long time uh, they will then come back to you and say and covid's made it worse they will then come back to you and say they've looked at all the information uh and you've been accepted, or and we believe you've got an entitlement to a war pension, and your assessment is 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 60 whichever. Uh, also in line with that is at certain points within the war pension system, there are then extra allowances. So if you get to 40% and you've got a physical injury and what makes you trouble with walking, you can then put in for the mobility scheme and you get a car from that. So they'll pay for a car. Uh, you know, you pay for your insurance and your petrol, but they'll pay for a brand new car for you. Uh, they, they don't pay it for you. You would have been given the money. It's just that you surrender that money and get a car. Uh, and then if you get to 60%, oh, also at 40%, you can go on what they call also, which is the allowance, uh, allowance for lower standard of occupation. Uh, and that means that if you were a sergeant in the army and you had a lot of these conditions and you just couldn't work within your, you know, your expectation of a sergeant in the army, which, you know, is about 80 pounds a day, you know, with employment uh, and you could only get a job, what was going to give you the national standard wage of about 16 quid a day, they would marry that up and they would bring your also would offset that loss in earnings. So that kicks in at 40%. And at 60% or 70%, if you're that bad physically and mentally, they then give you the term uh, unemployable. So they've accepted that you are going to be employable. So if you put in your CV to a job and you go for a job with your CV and you turn around in Britain and say, I've got mental health issues like I have, or I've got pretty severe uh, physical uh, problems, you know, most employers are going to look at that and think, there's no way I want you. Although right. they don't tell you that. Right. So you're not going to get, you know, so the Veterans Agency actually look on that and they'll give you that terminology of uh, uh, unemployable, which I am. That's what they class me as. So when I was medically discharged out of the British Army, uh, at the time it was just my PTSD. All my other conditions were there, but I was just focusing on my mental health because I was trying to sort right. out my... Ed, and you know, and I'd had this post-traumatic stress disorder all through my army career, uh, originating from the first Gulf, and and it was to do with uh, the trauma of working with the dead bodies. Uh, so you know, as soon as I came out, I I wanted to work. The problem was is I weren't fit enough to work mentally. Uh, you know, there's a good chance I probably would have killed someone. You know, right. whether I've been you know triggered off through irritability and anger. You know, or just, you know, through negligence, you know, I could have probably killed someone. So I had all these specialist trades, but, you know, I, I was a big articulated lorry driver. I had my motorbike license. I had my heister, which is your little forklift truck. Uh, and I had numerous other qualifications, which made me a good catch for City Street. The problem was I was just too mentally, 
I, I just wasn't mentally fit enough to, to work in Sydney Street. So the Veterans Agency clicked onto that. I had to fight for every penny of what they give me. I, I had to go back for tribunal after tribunal after tribunal of fighting the, the, the Ministry of Defence who controlled the Veterans Agency just to get what I felt I was entitled to. Right, yeah, and that's sad. And and I, I guess that's where we, you know, the United States, completely different, is the, in the United States, you can apply. And then when you get, you know, approved for PTSD and all that, PTSD normally ranges between 40 to 70%. Yeah. Our VA does a little bit different calculating because you can have 250% and that would probably bring you up to 100%. They don't go above 100%, but their math, their math calculations are totally different. But they recognize the gulf. And so, you know, when you're talking about IBS, we're, we're covered under IBS. We're covered under GERD. We're covered, you know, because we have presumptive. Y'all don't have for something which is a bunch of crap. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, and, yeah we don't have anything like that. And how uh, how well, do they not? How do they not? They don't recognise it. I mean, the British government's done a fantastic job of actually keeping the Gulf War out of the public eye. Uh, you know, they fought a fantastic campaign. You know, I wouldn't give them credit any time of the week, but in theory, they fought a fantastic campaign of keeping the Gulf soldiers what are ill out of the public eye. You know, so they'll turn around and say, you know, how many Gulf soldiers have you got ill? And they'll say, oh, we don't know. We're, we're not sure. You know what I mean? And so there's only, I believe there's only 9,000 out of the 55,000 what deployed to the first Gulf of the Army, Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy and Royal Marines. But there's only about 9,500 what are actually in receipt of uh, a war pension from the first Gulf War. Uh, because we recognise Afghanistan and Iraq as our Gulf War II and Gulf War III in theory. So the first Gulf we, we talk about, right. you know, 1990 to 1991. And uh, so, uh, you know, from them uh, conditions and, you know, what, what they would give you is they don't, they, they're not necessarily recognising any of them conditions. So they you will get the condition you know, you, you'll fight for the condition. They're not going to give it to you. Uh, their calculations are, uh, are done on a maths formula from the Second World War, uh, you know, from 1943. So they, they recognise that that's the, the role warrant what allows us to apply for that war, uh, war pension. And then their calculations is just, God knows, I think you've got to be a mathematician to understand their calculations. And as I said, but you've got to get it to that 10%. So, you know, to get 20%, you then get it a weekly pension, uh, and then it's got to go up in multiples of 10. Because if they give you, say, you know, 8% for that's 8% for, say, uh, gastro reflux, right. you're not going to get anything for it unless you then get across to that 10% threshold. So, you know, it, it, to get a, I mean, I, I get a war pension at 70%. Uh, that gives me, uh, I, over hundred pounds a week, so that's times four. Uh, so I probably got probably just under four hundred pounds a month uh, for my war pension. But I did 
my full career. I mean, I got medically discharged at my 20-year point, so I get a full uh, army pension anyway. Oh, if, we get to our, uh, if we get to our 19-year point, our pension is protected. So barring drinking and driving or murdering someone in the army, your pension is protected. And then after your 19-year point, if you get promoted, you then get increments after that. But you only get a 22-year career. When I joined, you only got a 22-year career in the British Army. The Royal Navy and the, and the RAF, the way they were set up, because they're all tradesmen, uh, they don't normally have a general duties job within the Royal Navy or the Royal Air Force, whereas the Army does have, in theory, general duties. Uh, so, you, you, you know, you join up at 17 and a half, you're going to be out at 42, because you're 22-year points that. Yeah. Officers in the British Army get 35 years as a regular officer, but it's pretty hard to get a regular commission in the British Army. They get a they get a short term uh, commission, and then they get a long term commission. So you know, as a professional soldier, when I joined, you could join for three years, six years, nine years, twelve years, or twenty two years, and that was it. You you signed on for that. So. Each one of them would give you a little bit more money. So if you join for three years and your mate signed up for six years, he'd probably get about 70 pence a day more than you. And in the 1980s, you know, that was a lot of money, 70 pence. It sounds right. dark. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, you know, uh, um, I mean, when I joined up, I was on 16 pounds a day. I don't know what that was in dollars. Probably about 20 odd dollars at the time. But, uh, you know, that, that's what I joined up on in, in, in the early 1980s. And then I came out as a sergeant on, uh, I think it was on about 80, 80 pounds a day when I finished. So oh, to wow. go from that, to go from that to get, you know, with all these conditions I had, I was so angry that the government has said I'm only worth 20%, which is 27 quid a day. And I wrote every letter to anyone, you know, and I, I, I would, I'd be writing it with such venom. I think it was spewing out of me, uh, you know, and I, I suspect the blood on my fingernails where I was dragging it across the paper, <laughs> calling everyone, every name I could call them, effing, fuck this, fuck that, your people can't read, your doctors are stupid, if I met your doctors, I'd fucking kill them, you know what I mean? I was so angry at the system, I'd, I'd lost my job, and they thought they could give me 27 quid a week in compensation, it just... I just couldn't understand it. I was, so I was, I think the impact of that literally made me even more ill. Well, uh, yeah. And it made me fight. It, it made me get all of the books out. I, you know, like in America, we, we could get the, you know, any of the type of books, what the issue. I was getting books out on the percentages. I was, I was getting books out on what you could apply for. Uh, and I was just fighting everyone. Uh, you know, I, I, I've got all my medical records. I've got all my general practitioners, what we call doctor's re records. And every other month they're saying, Mr. Selstrom's coming and told me to fuck off. You know, um, because I, I was just so angry at everything. Uh, you know, and, and that was on top of all the conditions I was trying to figure out in my own head. I was still in denial. I still did not think I had. Gulf War syndrome. I, I still in denial. Uh, you know, for a long time, I I then joined. I was uh, I went to Combat Stress, which is the uh, it's a it's a in-house uh, charity for servicemen with mental health uh, conditions. 
uh, so it used to be called the uh, British, what was it? Uh, I think it was something like the British Armed Forces uh, Mental Welfare, you know, charity. And then they changed it to Combat Stress. And it's the same again. It's just word terminology. You, right. As long as you had a diagnosis of a form of mental health or mental illness, because we've all got mental health, uh, you could then get into this charity. And as I said, they've got one in the south of England, one in the Midlands, and one in Scotland. And so you're all in regions, and you could, if you if they brought you for a week, uh, so you'd get a week's assessment. Uh, you know, and you'd go there for a week, you'd see a psychiatrist, they'd process you. If you hadn't already been diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or, you know, schizophrenia, psychosis, anything like that, then their, their psychiatrist would uh, diagnose you. So the Veterans Agency in this country will only recognise a mental illness if uh, it's been diagnosed from a consultant psychiatrist who's within the British Armed Forces or really a psychiatrist, you know, recognised from the British Army. And at the time, the only ones they recognised was combat stress. I want to ask you a question, and somebody just brought this up. You know, at, at, they asked similar problems between the U.S. U.S. is a whole lot better compared to what y'all are going through. But have y'all, do y'all have like CBD oil and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've got that. We've only just had that in this country about two years now. Oh, uh, wow. And it's pretty popular. Yeah, I mean, we've only had it from our chemists in the last two years where you could just buy it over the counter. Before that, the only way you could get uh, cannabis or, you know, CBD oil was from your doctors if you had a medical certificate. Okay. Uh, but if not, you, you would have to, uh, for the last two years, you can go you know, any high street shop or any chemist and buy it over the counter. Uh, I tried it. I've got to admit, I tried it for my pain. My daughter turned around, she said, I felt, Dad, you come across as more relaxed. But right. I didn't think it worked on any of my pain. So I gave it a month. I, you know, I, I gave it a trial for a month. I said, I'll take it for a month. I just didn't feel it did anything for me. Uh, you know, whereas... Um, my doctor said you just felt a lot more calmer. You came across as a lot calmer because uh, my my children have grown up with me. You know they they were both born when I was in the uh, in the army, uh, and they you know we've we've all been quite close together. Uh, you know my wife stuck with me through all of my trials of being triggered off with post traumatic stress disorder, and you know where I've been really nasty and angry. Uh, you know we've stuck together through that. Uh, we met when I was 12 and she was 11. So I think that that relationship bond had already survived, you know, my first part of the British Army. Right. Uh, you know, and then uh, we, we waited until I was a sergeant where I felt I could afford children because we know how mm -hmm. expensive children are. And I wanted, to, I wanted to make sure I had enough money to make sure I could look after my own children. Uh not expecting to, I knew I was going to come out of the army at some point, you know what I mean? And, uh, but I didn't expect to get a medical discharge. I thought I was just going to come out of the army with, with all these conditions, which I, as I said, I, I still didn't buy into that I had Gulf War syndrome. Uh, so I knew at some point I was going to finish my army career, uh, you know, and, and hopefully get the best rank I could achieve. Uh, but, 
you know, I realised when you're angry in the British Army, when you're triggered off with PTSD, you know, you can say things to people which, you know, at the time, through irritability, you, 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 you know, you probably don't mean. And, and the problem is, is when you tell your commanding officer that you're going to kill the cunt, you know what I mean? It doesn't <laughs> go down too well. Uh, you know, in the end, put you in handcuffs and drag you away to the yeah. doctor. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I, I actually did that twice. Uh, and I know, you know, if any of the British, uh, the British guys who serve with me would probably back me up on that. Uh, you know, I would regularly kick off, uh, you know, I'm sure some of your guys would probably say like a bitch, but I would, you know, it didn't stop me getting promoted, but it did, it did stop me from getting too far. I think if I wouldn't have had post-traumatic stress disorder, in the British Army, I probably would have got a, bo- a lot further. I, I, you know, I could easily have made most of my courses were at warrant officer level. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you go from private to warrant officer, and then you get a commission. So I was more than achievable to make warrant officer level. But I think because I, when I was ill and people didn't understand the mental illness of the way post-traumatic stress affects you, uh, you know, it stopped you. It was a barrier to getting promoted in work. Uh, so when you stay in work and you're suffering with a mental illness, uh, and at the time I used to refuse medication. I, I didn't take medication until 2000. So I got medically diagnosed with post-traumatic stress order in the army in September 1991. But I refused any type of uh, psychiatric medication until the early 2000s. The first medication I went on was anti-acid tablet and then I got medically discharged because you know I suspect just like the American forces well I, I'm not really sure but you know if you got if you went and seen a psychiatrist in the British Army that was a no-no people right. automatically yeah. thought you were mad you know people automatically thought you were mad it was only because of my character and my regiments are quite a close-knit regiment you know most of the guys you grow up with them, you serve on the same operational tours, you, you know, you know them all, you go in the corporal's mess, you go in the sergeant's mess or the, you know, one officer's science mess. So these guys you're working with every day as a professional soldier, so they all know you. Uh, so when you get triggered off, and, and they're all very sympathetic of any of the guys in our regiment who do brave registration, because all of them have an introduction to that job. So all of them know the cost it can take out on you mentally. You know what I mean? So, you know, guys in my regiment, when you triggered off and you tell, you know, you kick off or you have a, uh, you're triggered off, it, it's not a worry. They'll just send you off. It's when you come out of the regiment and get posted somewhere else and people don't know you mm-hmm. uh, and you have, you get triggered off. That's when the problems start occurring uh, because people don't know you at them units. At your own regiment, they would look after you. At these other units, they would, you know, mark you up, mark you sick, and you're out the door. Uh, and then if it's on the mental health grounds, well, you know, that's like a nail in your coffin, excuse the pun. Uh, you know what I mean? And that's what it'd be like. So, you know, it's a no-no going sick, but going sick with mental health problems in the British Army causes you a lot of problems. And, you know, the British Army, even today, are still fighting the stigma around mental health in the British Army. They've tried absolutely all sorts. The only other big campaign the British Army do is when it gets to December for Christmas, and they bigger they do a big one for drinking and driving. 
because that's when drinking and driving problems start occurring in the Brit uh, in Britain anyway. It's traditionally around the festive period. So there's two what they fight is the the constant stigma around mental health, and they're always talking. You know, it's good to talk, and uh, drinking and driving or or the you know the people getting still drunk, and we don't have a we have a compulsory drug test in the British Army, but we don't have a compulsory alcoholic abuse. Uh, you know what I mean? So you could be getting drunk all the time and everyone's the same as you. You know right. what I mean? If you're at a unit where everyone's getting drunk, you know, no one's... The amount of times when I look back now and realise that I was still drunk driving vehicles the next day uh, because I wouldn't have finished drinking until three and four o'clock in the morning in the you know the sergeant's mess or the court's mess if we had parties but y'all's yeah. y'all ships now this is something that i i don't know why the rus navy doesn't have it but y'all got a bar on uh, every europe ship i walked on board i was pissed i was like how in the hell do they get the liquor and we don't get nothing yeah, yeah that was like all everywhere <laughs> i mean even in the first gulf uh the first Gulf was probably the first operation where I stayed sober in a theory, you know, and that's sober in the sense that I didn't touch any alcohol at all. Everywhere else I've been, uh, you know, there was alcohol freely available. Yeah. You know, even in, you know, even in Bosnia, in Northern Ireland, if you weren't on duty, you could have a drink. They used to call it the, the two-can rule. Okay. But I'm not sure if they meant jerry cans or <laughs> beer cans, you know what I mean? Because... I don't think anyone took any notice of two cans. You just get uh, in the Falkland Islands, uh, you, as a junior rank, you're not allowed to touch spirits. So you could have alcohol and they would open all the cans. Well, the problem is, is in the Falklands, right across the road is the civilian construction uh, business. So all you used to do was get an invite over there and they could drink as much spirits as they want. <laughs> so you could just go over there and get pissed. You know what I mean? And, and in Bosnia, when I was out there in Croatia, in the local, we call them golly shops. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what, you know, that's what you call these, uh, like, civilian cafes on the military bases. Uh, and you'd just go in there, and the guys will make you coffee, and he'd lace it with brandy. So everyone says, is anyone having a drink? No. And all the guys would be in this little cafe drinking uh, coffee brandy. You well, know see, what I mean? See, that's not fair because I'm telling you, we would have to be out to sea for six months and we would get one beer. That yeah. is it. We pull in the port, we have one beer. I mean, but you could sell it for a hundred bucks. I mean, it was really good money if you want to sell your beer. It's, yeah, definitely. No, yeah. I mean, alcohol gets through. I mean, I can remember in, in the first Gulf, the guys were buying that swan. Up in Al Jabal, it was like swan non-alcoholic beer. Yeah. And they were sat there taking the tops off and pouring it in a big plastic <laughs> container and getting yeast sent over from Britain, buying sugar and adding it, and then about a month later, like they're on still, and then they'd literally, a couple of two weeks, three weeks later, this, you know, non-alcoholic beer was an alcoholic, and they'd be drinking that. I, I drank some horrible bloody drinks in the first Gulf. <laughs> you know, when I went to places like Al Jabail, uh, Riyadh, one of our teams was down in Riyadh, was, you know, doing that. And I always used to laugh because I flew down to Riyadh with a dead body. 
And we flew into the airbase, uh, which I believe was a joint airbase for the British Americans and anyone else was there. And the guys picked us up. We took the body down to the their local morgue and, uh, and then went to their compound. And the alarms went off. And everyone, I was sort of like so blasé, you know, they're, they're all putting on their NBC kit, which I think your mop. Is it your mop? Right, yeah, uh, or a mop, yeah. <laughs> I suppose it's called NBC. And uh, they'd all be getting rushing to get it on. And I was just taking my time because my attitude was, well, you know, I'm from Al Jabail. We see these Scud missiles flying over every other night, not realising, well, actually, Riyadh's where they land. You know what I mean? So I'm watching them in Al Jabail flying over uh, up until they near enough took out Shed 5, which was one of the American sheds. Uh, but these scuds were flying over and not realising, as I said, they were going to land somewhere and they were aiming for uh, Riyadh. So when I went down there with this dead body, they're all putting their kit on and I'm just taking my time. And I heard this massive whoosh and boom where it hit uh, a hotel complex, probably about two, 300 metres from where we were. Uh, and they were aiming for the uh, airbase, the, the runway, and it was bouncing off there and hitting the accommodation. And so, you know, I'm just sat there and, and I can remember trying to get my glove on my head. You know what I mean? Like a chicken, <laughs> trying to get this glove on. I was trying to get my kit on that fast because this explosion and they're all masked up and they've got their masks on. And I'm still trying to get my kit on because they were so used to doing it, uh, you know, down in there. Whereas we didn't even bother doing that in Al Jabail. You know what I mean? The, the only preventative measure in Al Jabail, what I can remember having there, was we carried our respirator around with us, was the NAPS tablets and the malaria tablets, what we've taken every, you know, our, every eight hours or every day at every meal. Uh, you know, they were the only preventative preventative measures we were doing up in, in Riyadh, in, in Al Jabal, sorry, compared to the guys down at Riyadh, which were getting scuds landing every day or every night down yeah, where they crazy. were. You know, and I can crazy. remember being down there saying, get me on an aeroplane, I want to go back up north. <laughs> you know, I'm not hanging around here. You know, I mean, I, I think while I was down there for that two days, I think three scuds at Riyadh that, that within them two days, you know oh. what I mean? And, uh, and then the only other one I know of was the one that landed in the docks at Al Jabail, what just missed Shed 5, which was one of the American sheds. Wow. I, I remember when we, we pulled into uh, Fajar, I believe it was, and, you know, we just got out there. And some moron, when they brought up on a helicopter, brought a pallet, he put, paint thinner over our exhaust system on our ship um i just got on the phone with my mom and i'm like you know hey we made you know i can't tell you where we're at but we're over somewhere in the middle east and all of a sudden an explosion happened i turned around and i just don't know why i said it <laughs> I, looked, I said i gotta let you go our ship just blew up and i hung up and i went back about Three hours later, I was like, oh, crap, I had to call my mom back. <laughs> I felt yeah. so bad, but, I mean, it, it was crazy over there. And, I mean, I did a lot of unreps. That's where ships go side by side, and we're sending cargo back and forth. And I will never forget the British Navy. That Their captain, 
he decided, well, we're going to show y'all what it's like to fly a British helicopter. That dude was literally doing circles around our ship in a helicopter. Stuff I ain't never seen anybody do in a helicopter. I, I, was, I was so impressed with that. I was like, but hell no, I never get Never would I fly with y'all in a helicopter. No way. Mm -hmm. Them guys are crazy. But I, I oh, love yeah. that. My first unit when I uh, went into the regular army was a nuclear missile regiment. So we had what the Americans had launched missiles in the 1950s, and we still had it as a battlefield nuclear weapon, which always used to make me laugh that because I was thinking a battlefield nuclear weapon would literally obliterate London. So I don't know what an interballistic continental missile would obliterate. So we used to work with the Americans because it was too on for every English job. Every British job, you had an American soldier. So we had a, a, a military police logistics regiment, a missile regiment, which was the Americans, uh, just based outside Munster in West Germany. And we were down at uh, eight regiment, which was a logistics regiment with nuclear missiles. And we used to deliver, they used to deliver the main missile assembly. And, you know, and then they'd put the, they'd meet up with 50 missile regiment put the gnomes cone on the things and then put it in the lance missile, which was the weapons platform to fire it. So every job we had, uh, we had Americans there. So I, I, that was my first time I worked with the Americans. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't rate you. Then, back in the 80s, I just didn't rate you because, you know, you'd been out of probably Vietnam since 1973, 74. Some of these guys had served then. It was just quite strange for the two cultures to come together, you know, because like right. I said, they, you know, we, we both speak English, but our cultures are totally different. And then they gave us a an American officer, a, a captain, and our officer went to an American platoon, and we ended up with this Puerto Rican officer who didn't speak English, which was weird to us <laughs> because you can imagine it's pretty difficult for us to hear some of the American accents, like it would be for Americans to understand some of the British accents, the regional accents right you know east coast west coast ours is normally the south of england and the north of england and then you've got scotland wales and northern ireland uh so it's you know trying to navigate the british accents and then we ended up with this american uh lieutenant who we all had difficulty trying to understand they then gave him a an american sergeant who could to us spot english a lot better which he then missed it in in interpretation in a sense so none of us ever did anything for him because by the time he'd said it and we'd all understood it you know you sort of like stood there gulping at him thinking what did he just say then <laughs> what did he just say then you know what i mean and it, you know the whole point of orders in the army is to get something done as fast as you can do it not to stand there and ask right what did he just say so we had him for about three months then we lost him and then we came across a a black American officer, female, who then worked with us, which was, you know, that was a novelty for us because, you know, we're a frontline unit in the British Army, uh, you know, frontline in the sense of we were a pioneer infantry moving a nuclear missile under the Roker or transport to get it across to a Royal Artillery. And they kept giving us, like an experiment, these American officers who were... So it was quite novel to us having a Puerto Rican officer and then having a, a black female officer. 
And the thing is, we don't have, you know, we see all these things that are coming out of America where there's this sort of like white and black thing, whereas it's, I don't think it's ever been a problem in Britain, you know, in that sense. Right. Uh, so, you know, my regiment was made up of a lot of black lads uh, from the Commonwealth. So we had Ghana, my, one of my sergeant majors from Ghana, which would be West Africa, uh, you know, uh, you would meet Jamaicans, you would meet African guys, you would meet, you know, uh, anywhere. So you would meet all these foreign guys who would come in from the, the, you know, the Commonwealth anyway, because any of the Commonwealth countries can join the British Army anyway. Uh, you know what I mean? So we used to have a lot of black guys, but all of us just couldn't understand this uh, Puerto Rican officer or this female black American officer. You know what I mean? And then getting out to the Gulf, it was only the Gulf War where I then turned around and I was really impressed with the American forces. Because I always used to think back in the 80s, we were playing at it, you know, doing exercise, exercise reforges. And it was just like we were all playing at it. And I'll be honest with you, I wasn't that impressed with our allies. And I'm sure they probably weren't impressed with us because we did totally, you know, things totally different. Uh, but when when I got to the Gulf, I was really impressed with American forces then. Because I think when you went on a war footing, that's when the professionalism came out. And that's what I took away from the Gulf War, that, you know, I was the younger brother of a heavyweight boxer and used the American forces like the heavyweight boxer. And I knew that I am glad I'm with them and working with them. That's you know, when awesome. there's half a million of them. That's how it felt to me, is that I had the protection of my big brother. I've got 10 brothers and sisters, and I'm the youngest, and all of them were quite good fighters. So, you know, that's how it felt to me, that I had a big brother who was watching my back while I did my job. You know what I mean? And that, that's the impression I took away from the first Gulf, was, you know, working with our American allies, 80s, just didn't have any, you know, there was just nothing there. But I think that's because of the, it was like it was, it was an experiment of let's give them another American officer. And it just didn't work for us. Whereas, you know, years later, working with the Americans again, you know, and, and working with more of a scope of Americans, you know, the United States Marine Corps, infantry regiments, cavalry regiments, you know what I mean? I, I saw the difference in and, and the professionalism and the, you know, the, just the get up and go sort of attitude, uh, you know, in comparison to to you know the British Army, whereas you know we we are quite small and we've been small for a long time, you know uh, it, it, we really have to push us to to get us going and mobilise uh, you know the British Armed Forces in comparison to you know the Americans and I and I saw the same again in Bosnia, you know what I mean we we were we just felt our hands were tied behind our back under the UN, and then when they did the Daytona agreement and the Americans turned up, you know, they, they used came with that attitude of, look, take the mines off the road, otherwise we'll shoot you. And, you know, there wasn't a second question to that. Whereas, you know, for a couple of years, British Army had been trapped in this mentality of you work for the UN, United Nations, you do what they say, so keep your mouth shut and just do what you're told. Whereas when, you know, in 95, when I saw the Americans turned up in the October 95 into Tulosla and uh, going for Kufa and them areas slightly north of us, you know, we were we were chuckling when the Americans turned up and they were just sort of like, move your minds or we'll shoot you and then, you know, and then just let ripping with a, 
a 30 cal or a 50 cal. You know what I mean? And whereas, you know, for the previous two and a half years, two, yeah, two and a half, three years, we'd, we'd had our hands tied. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I mean, I just got impressed as, you know, the years went on. Yeah, well, uh, what's funny is I got to read what John wrote down here. He said, you know, why we send an LT? He said, oh, my gosh, LOL. And he also says, depend on officers, you know, in all fa- fairness and everything. But I really like this comment. He goes, likewise, love the Brits, all of the country's troop, great people. And he's right. I mean, yeah. and he said, you know, well-trained y'all are. And, you, you know, of course, we speak differently than y'all speak proper English. I don't. So you'll have to forgive that part of me. But the one thing I did find is when we did joint exercises with their Navy, it was no different because them guys would pull up alongside of us. We'd shoot a shot line, send our cables over. Our equipment all worked together. The only thing I did not like was the Belgium ships. I'm going to be honest with you. They had to run their rigs old-fashioned from the 1920s. I was, everything had to be done by hand. I was like, what the hell? We got winches right here. We don't have to do all that. But yeah. it was neat to be able to run the old rigs back in the you know early 1940s and 50s. It was really neat to do that. But British, the British, <laughs> I tell you, that British helicopter pilot ain't nowhere on God's green earth would I ever get in that helicopter with that man. That guy was crazy. Yeah. It's when you said about the helicopters, what reminded me of, you know, when I first got to Germany, because we used to put the the main missile assembly of the cruise, uh, the the Lance missile, which was the nuclear bit, actually in the Chinooks. And then they would sling our Land Rovers underneath it and then take off. So when you were saying about this mad Brit flying an helicopter around, I can remember from being in with these mad Brits in the Chinooks flying us around with a nuclear missile. And we never knew if it was live or practice. That was the difference, is where every exercise we did, you know, although they called it an exercise, we never knew when we went to Munster North, which was an American uh, ordnance depot uh, shared by the British and the Americans. So when we drove in there and went to the nuclear missile side of it, we never knew if they put nuclear missiles on the exercise vehicles or they put dummy rounds. And uh, so we never knew for the whole of that exercise whether we had a real one <laughs> or a practice one. And I, and to be honest, when I look back, I don't think any of them were practice. I think all of them were live oh, because of the job. You know, we're fighting through the Cold War, sat in Germany, expecting the whole of the you know the communist Red Army to smash through that uh, you know the German border and come trundling through uh, Western Europe. And, you know, to to fighters on the in Germany, and so I don't, I you know, when I look back, I think every one of them missiles were were live uh, when I look back because of the exercises we're doing. And uh, like I said, but having these crazy Americans were, you know, you couldn't understand or they had these strange habits. But I can remember when we got out to the Gulf, and we'd always laugh that the Americans turn up with burger bars and. Uh, ice cream wagons and that we just couldn't believe it you know the british you know we, we just couldn't believe it you you get your hot meals from the cookhouse or you got your ration packs if you're on exercise in your hole you know you didn't get anything else so you know to go on an operational tour and you know go down to the docks 
and this American burger bar sat there. You know, that was wonder because, you know, we'd, we only had, you know, the burger shops had really opened in the late 70s, early 80s. We didn't have burgers before that in Britain. What? You know, not hamburger. Not yeah, we didn't have, we just, we had, we had the, sort of like the combination, but we, we don't, we didn't really have hamburgers until, you know, until what we call Wimpy went on the high street in the late 1970s. Uh, so I was born in 64. So, you know, I was a young teenager in the late 70s coming up to leaving school. And uh, so then to get these shops on the high street, which were burger bars, as in Wimpy, you know what I mean? So then to get into the early 90s, so we'd only really had them 20 years. Then you get to the early 90s and the Americans are turning up with burger bars. I just thought it was great. And so did all of us. So rather than going to the cookhouse, we used to make an excuse to drive down to the docks <laughs> and actually just go and stand at the burger bar and chat to the Americans or, you know, buy as many burgers as you can. <laughs> I would have made, down your hey, I would have made the Americans pay for it. I would have been like, hey, guys, we never had one of these. Can y'all buy us yeah. one? There's, you know? No, they're not that daft. You know, we <laughs> might have thought they were daft, but they're not stupid, let's be honest. But yeah, we had a, you know, that, and then next to it, they had uh, the ice cream shop. So that was another set Because all oh, we yeah. had was Naffy. You know, ours is called Naffy, which is the Naval, Army, Air Force, uh, Forces Institute. And uh, so they had what they call EFI, which is the Express, Ex Expeditionary Force Institute, what deploys. And really, all they sell is sweets and uh watches and cds and you know air products and you know crap like that it, and you know a tin of coke which you know wasn't cold uh so yeah they had this little naffy in comparison to you know what the americans have turned up with but i i noticed in bosnia when we were there we used to have queues of americans because as i said our naffy sold watches music, uh, CDs, tapes, videos, you know, uh, you know, video, you know, cameras, whereas I wasn't sure if you still had that facility, whereas we did. So if you wanted to buy something tax-free, you would just go in the naffy. So I used to see queues of the French and Americans outside the naffy, you know, waiting to get in to get a tax-free camera or tax-free other bits and bobs. So, you know what I mean? Whereas we'd be trying to queue up in the American bases, to get to the burger bars. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, uh, we, when we would pull in, uh, I'm going to think it wasn't Fajara, it was in uh, Bahrain, which I'm going to give the, uh, we have in Texas called Bluebell Ice Cream. Bluebell and Pizza Hut. All right. I am telling you, I had to give them a lot of credit because they put trucks over there I mean, we were able almost every time we pull in a load up cargo, here comes Blue Bell and Pizza Hut. You go get you some pizza and you go get you a Blue Bell pint of ice cream in Rocky Roads. It... I mean, that's what I, 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 I took some photographs. I, uh, I just before I went to the Gulf, I swapped bank accounts and just for the enticement, they give you a camera. Uh, you know what I mean? It was a, just a shitty link, but it was my combat camera. And I took it anywhere. So when I went to the Gulf, I took bloody hundreds of photographs, you know, hundreds of them, and I sent them all home uh, to get uh, 
you know, to get printed off. Yeah. Uh, and so I ended up with hundreds of, and I didn't realise, I, I, people always used to say to me, I used to say, no, I didn't take a lot of photographs, but I didn't realise actually I did. I took hundreds of photographs. And I thought to myself when we did the training, for because I didn't volunteer for the grave registration. That was just not a job, which was in my remit. I got told I was doing it because I was over 21. I could drive a four-ton truck and I was a, a young NCO. That was the remit to get me in. And uh, so, you know, when they said to me, you're doing grave registration, I was like, no, not me. I'm not doing it. Oh, no, you you, you don't have to volunteer for it. You've been volunteered. Oh, you know man. what I mean? And uh, so my commanding off or my officer commanding had volunteered me to do it. Uh, but to me, it was just one of them jobs, like any job I had in the army, you do 100%. You know, you as a professional serviceman, which a lot of your guys, uh, you know, who were professional service, no, you give the job 100%. You you whinge and whine after the fact. You know, you, you, you put your complaints in after you've done the job, but while you're doing the job, you just knuckle down and get on with it. Right. And uh, so when, the, you know, when I got told I'm doing the job, uh, I wasn't happy with it, but everything was just, you know, you were just unexpected everything. I mean, we, the, the last time we guys had done the job was in the Falklands War, which is sort of like 10 years before. Uh, and then the last time they did the job before that would have been in the Korean War and, you know, the Second War. Because as I said, it was just one of them units that only gets activated when we go off on uh, a war footing. Uh, you know, so to, so to deploy to the Gulf, uh, and our job was if a serviceman was killed up front we were going to go up and collect him and then bring him back to the divisional area and then get him out of the country but they would wait you know if you were killed today and no one was killed for a couple of weeks you would sit in the morgue you don't get sent back straight away because you're not going to send one aircraft back with one body right. you'd have to get lots of stuff to send back so you could have a body sat in that morgue for you know, a couple of days, if not, you know, maybe a week or something. And uh, until they had a few of them. And, you know, so getting that job, uh, being told you're doing the job and then getting out. So that process was someone would go up and collect the body, like the collection point team, bring him down to the search and recovery team, bring him down to Antibile, get him down to Riyadh, and then he'd fly out the country. But each time we would be sitting in a morgue to then move him on. And then on the 23rd of February, they they changed it because none of us were going to go in with the frontline troops because they were said that we would process it away from the front line. And then, as I said, round about the 23rd of February, they said, stop what you're doing. We're going to change the orbit. And it was like, how are you going to do that? And then what we're going to do is send two teams forward. So we're going to send one team with four armoured brigade and one team with seven armoured brigade. So four armoured brigade is an infantry brigade. Seven armoured brigade was an armoured brigade, i.e. tanks. So seven brigade, there was two tank regiments and an infantry regiment. In four armoured brigade, there was two infantry regiments and a tank regiment. So four was the, the infantry compared to seven. And, and when I was in Germany, I was based with four armoured brigade. So when they asked, I said, well, look, there might be a chance I might know a few people in four armoured brigade. I'll go four armoured if somebody's going to seven. And uh, so I ended up with four armoured brigade and we ended up attached to uh, the 
1st Royal Scots, which is the most senior British infantry regiment in the British Army. Uh, they, that, well, they're there. I mean, they've they've gone now. They've amalgamated all the British infantry regiments. But we, we went with them and the uh, Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. So they were burying a big, you know, like a big budgie feather sticking out the cap. Uh, so they're all our Fusilier regiments. That's how you can recognise them. Okay. They have different coloured uh, plumes off hanging off the back of their berries, or I should say the back of their cap badge. Uh, I apologise to any of the guys with a fusiliers. And so we ended up with them, uh, and they were all warrior, so they all had warrior armed fighting vehicles. We had a Land Rover and a four-tonner. So I don't think anyone clicked on. Trying to get a wheeled vehicle to keep up with a trap vehicle in the desert is extremely difficult. I'm not saying... It's not bouncy in any vehicle. You know, anyone went through, in, you know, in Desert Storm and actually went through the desert when we all attacked the Iraqis, uh, you know, that bounce of them vehicles was absolutely horrendous. You know, your vehicle was bouncing all over in them convoy routes. Uh, so they changed it for us and we ended up up the front with the infantry. And what they said to us, uh, we were going to do what the Americans do. And we were like, what do they do? And they said, well, if a serviceman gets killed, they go forward, collect the body while the fight's on for the morale purpose and get him out of the way. And we were like, well, let the Americans do it then. <laughs> you know, right. If they want to do that, let them do it. They can do us. You know what I mean? There's more of them than us. But no, they said that's what they wanted us to do. So, you know, the job was if anyone was killed while the fighting was on, we were going to move in and, you know, take the body and remove it out there. So when the that action finished, the guys didn't have to worry about psychologically of, you know, enemy dead good, our own dead bad, you know, and, and it was our own dead gives you the psychological problems in theory. Uh, so, yeah, so we went in with the uh, Royal Scots and the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers and saw nothing for the first two days. So from the 24th and 25th, all I did, like a lot of the American infantry units and the tank units or cavalry, was just travel through the desert with no name, in a sense, <laughs> with nothing. You know, just wow. blankness and these massive big convoys. You used to look behind you to see hundreds of vehicles. That's what it felt of hundreds of vehicles behind you, just travelling in this in this mine cleared route, uh, and then. In front of you, in the dark, during the daytime, you could see the vapour trails of the MLRS, the old multi-barrel rocket launchers, in the distance. At night time, they were literally, they were just, you know, it was like in Britain, we have fireworks night in November, so people start find, buying fireworks. That's what it felt. So we're brought up with that, you know, right through our early lives, all the way through. The 5th of November is when the British... Uh, Burnt Guy Fawkes, and Guy Fawkes was a Catholic who wanted to kill the Protestant king on the throne in early 1600s. So we celebrate burning someone, which is Guy Fawkes night, on the 5th of November. Uh, we didn't get him, he didn't kill the king. However, we got his son, we chopped his son's head off a bit a few years later <laughs> in the English Civil War. So we chopped his head off, and then his son, uh, we kicked him out and became a republic rather than a, a monarchy country so yeah we had the Stuarts in britain right through the 1600s we tried to blow one up we chopped one's head off and kicked the other one out which we're quite proud of that to be honest uh however 
Guy Fawkes Night, you grow up with that in Britain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 50 November, the run-up to 50 November is just fireworks. But on the 50 November in Britain, not, you know, health and safety is really clamped down on it. But when I was a kid, the whole sky at night would be lit up. You know what I mean? With all these fireworks going off. So being out in the Gulf, it was like that when you saw MLRS going off in front of you. And then when we hit a minefield, I saw a bomb go off to the left of me and I thought it was MLRS and I was thinking, fucking hell, they're close. Literally, it, it was very similar. And I thought, fuck me, that was close. And then as I said that, I looked to the right and this vehicle, this trailer on this back, on this literally on the other vehicle in the other combo just lit up. And I saw this one-ton trailer literally just fly up and hit the whole back of this truck. And I was thinking, and then the whole combo stopped. And all I heard was, you know, I was looking in the front of us, it was a Land Rover, and I saw the guy get out and he's on the canvas and he's waving. And I'm thinking, what the fuck's he got up there for? <laughs> and I took the window down. See, a lot of the vehicles, they took the glass out because they said if you're at the minefield, the glass explosion will give you secondary effects. We opted to leave ours in, which was a good one, because anyone will tell you, on the 24th, 25th, that first night we went into Iraq, just howled it down with rain. I mean, the rain was actually totally horrendous in the area where we went through. It was like a quagmire, the, the sand. So keeping the window screen in was fantastic in our vehicle, whereas a lot of them... The guys were just sat there freezing, <laughs> soaking wet. Right. And uh, so that minefield literally struck me up. And I remember taking the, the side window down and popping my head out. I remember him shouting, we're in a minefield. And I'm thinking, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Fuck me, I've just seen it for myself. Back in, you know, I've just seen two fucking mines go off either side of me. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, all right, we're in a minefield. So I put the window back up and I had Elton John. And I just turned Elton John on. <laughs> I thought I had Elton John, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. And I just turned that up. I thought, if I'm going to fucking die here, at least I want to die. Listen to the music I want to listen to. There you so go. I, had, I just turned the Pink Floyd up. We had Elton John first and then we just put Pink Floyd on. You know, and you're just driving for hours and hours. And I just thought, you know, I'm after that. And it was only the... We got to the 25th, I think, 26th, is when we uh, got our first call. Uh, it was about quarter past four in the afternoon, and a dispatch rider turned up, and he said, have you seen the grave registration? And we went, yeah, mate, you found us. Because there was only eight of us there. I said, yeah, you found us. And he said, uh, I'm after Lieutenant Parry. And I, and I shouted the boss. I said, sir, you wanted? And he come out, and he said, uh, he had a briefing, and he come back, he said, look, there's, there's been a... There's been an accident. And I went, what way? He said, a British tank has hit a warrior and blown it up. This is the blue on blue with the A-10. But at the time, we weren't told that. Uh, so I said, all right. And he said, look, you stay with half of the section and I'll take the uh, search and recovery team, which is the other half. There's only eight of us, so I had four and he had four. He's one of the four and I'll go and get him. And he said, if the combo sets off, because, you know, you'd only be sat in in the harbour area, well, this fucking big, long, linear stretch of vehicles, if you call that a harbour area, uh, we dug in our shell scrapes, because that was the routine, you know, normal routine SOPs would, as soon as the vehicles turn up, you get halted, 
you dig shell scrapes just in case any artillery lands. And uh, so he went off, we dug the shell scrapes, and then about an hour later he comes back and I said, what's it like? And he went, yeah, it's fucking grim. And I went, why, what have you got? And he said, I've got nine dead bodies. And I went, fucking hell, I was thinking nine dead bodies, there's only four of them in a tank. And he went, no, it was two warriors. And I went, a fucking tank, he's took two warriors out. And he went, yeah, that's what we've been told. And, and initially, we were told it was a British tank unit what had taken out two British Army uh, warriors. And I and we just didn't have any information over then. We had these nine dead bodies. Uh, we put them on to the uh, wagon. So I've got big bags and little bags. Uh, we didn't have any uh, body bags. We only had MVC casualty bags. Mm-hmm. Well, that's okay when you're playing around with them. The problem is in a war, and we were expecting a chemical war, if you put a dead body in a chemical bag, if it gets down the chain, people are going to think they've got a casualty, what is chemical casualty. So it's a different drill. So by putting them in them MBC bags caused problems as these bodies were moved down the the chain back to Algebile, in theory. And... uh, and these, there was two types of casualty bags, what we had for NBC. There's one with a zip. They both had big plastic things right. where you can see out. Because an NBC nuclear biological chemical warfare bag is different from a body bag. You don't need to put a fucking plastic viewing bit in the front of a body bag because the fucker's dead. Right. Whereas in a casualty bag, you've, you know, in, a, in an NBC bag, you know, they need to fucking hear you and speak to you. And, uh, so I, I, it was in the dark, and we put these bits of bags and that in the back of there in our vehicle, and we actually had uh, trestles, what we'd built in the back, uh, but they'd been empty up to that point. You know, we, we, on the floor, we just had loads and loads of jerry cans of water. We had a generator, which we had no fuel for, but even if we had the fuel, we had no fucking water for it because the water we had, we were drinking. Uh, and then we had our own rations in there. So, you know, when these bodies turned up, we put them on the shelving the next day when we were going to drive off. And like I said, if you drive over the desert, it is fucking like that. Right. <laughs> All day long. Perhaps <laughs> you're fucking crazy. And you're just bouncing like that. Well, the thing is, if you've got nine dead bodies on the back of this trestling, them fuckers are going to bounce as well. And they bounced off and landed on the floor in a big pile. So when we stopped and they said, you know, stop, guys. And I said to the boss, we need to process these dead bodies and get them back. And he turned around and said, yeah, not a problem. Originally, we had reefer wagons, which were freeze refrigerated wagons. Right. They were going to come up the convoy and we were going to transfer the bodies to them. Well, it's only when they went over the desert and they realised you can't take a refrigerated wagon, in theory, over the desert because it breaks the unit and the refrigeration thing stops. So they decided not to use that process. What they said was they'll, they'll bring helicopters in and we'll bring a marshal them in and we'll uh, cross-load them onto there. So we sat there with these nine bodies. I brought them out and said, like, we'll process them. And six of them were just bits, literally like a fucking big jigsaw uh, of just bits. It was... Heads missing, arms missing, torsos. And the other three of them were complete, as if they were just asleep. 
And uh, and I was, you know, trying to process that. So the first thing I opened up, I had a foot in my hand with the sock on it. You know, and you can imagine you're thinking, well, how come we've got a fucking foot? I thought we had nine bodies. And they went, no, there was nine dead. What you've got, what was left of them? Because this A4 warthog, which we found out later, had mistaken these two British armoured vehicles for Iraqi armoured vehicles and let rip on them, as in sent them Maverick rounds down. The, the rounds had blown the back of the vehicle, so the six of the guys in the back had been killed. Two of them guys and the guys, the section commanding the driver, had got out of the vehicle, whereas on the other vehicle, it hit the front, which means that it killed the commander, the driver, and one of the other guys, whereas the guys in the back got out. Uh, so, yeah, and then we ended up with them, uh, processed them, and then we got a... We realised we couldn't have them on because when they all landed on the floor, uh, I counted the bags and I counted the bags in the night before and one of the bodies were missing. And I thought, this is going to be fucking embarrassing, this, because if we've lost a body, some poor fucker behind us is going to see a bag in the sand, walk up and open the back and there's going to be a dead body staring at him. (laughs) Which was, you know, this black sense of humour we was. And we're also like like hyenas giggling over it. Some poor fucker's going to get a nasty right. surprise. Actually, he'd, he'd come off the trestling and fell in between the Hessian side. It's not the Hessian, the canvas side. And he was sat in there. Well, the torso was sat in there rather than the... So, you know, I said to the guys, I went to the boss and said, sir, we've got a body missing. And... uh you know, and he, and he turned around and said, where the fuck you know, do you think it is? And I went, I haven't got a clue. I said, he's missing. I counted nine bags in there, sort of, and I've only got eight. And he's, he's you know, you could see the colour drying out of him thinking, shit, you know, because, you know, how professional is it going to look if there's a fucking body halfway down the combo? And then luckily we, you know, we found it in the side, hanging out, the, you know, where the Essium the was, he was in there. Yeah. Well, so we, we, we undid the strap in and dropped him out uh, or dropped it, what I was ever left of him. Uh, opened the bags up. It was fucking horrendous. Uh, tagged. We used to call it bagging and tagging. So you would uh, bag the body in there and then tag the body, whatever you had. Uh, but it's hard when you've got six of them just blown to bits. So they picked up what they could. Uh, you know, so you can't identify any of them, whereas the three of them you could. And then we put them on Chinooks. So we brought Chinooks in to land his in. And actually, there was an American serviceman sat on the Chinooks, what was injured. Because uh, I think, you know, when they go to war, anyone can call in a, an aircraft or, right. you know, a helicopter. And I think these American servicemen were all injured and this helicopter landed. So it might have been a, an American helicopter. And they brought us, we ran across the where it landed and brought the bodies in. I can remember the loadmaster saying, what have you got? And we went, we've got some bodies. And I can remember him turning around to me saying, what the fuck, you got dwarfs? Because, you know, we're saying bodies and, you know, you're only talking the torso. So from the neck downwards to the, the, the waistline, right. or, you know, bits and bodies. And he, I can always remember that in my head. What the fuck have you got? Dwarfs. You know what I mean? So anyway, we, we threw them on with all these casualties, what were sat in the, sat in the back of this uh, helicopter. And then went back to our vehicle and that flew off. Uh, then we carried on. We had another British fatality. 
And then we then they turned around to us and said to us, which I'm not sure if the American military affairs guys had the same. Our job was to look after British servicemen, not you know look after every other fucking British servicemen and allies was our job, not Iraqi dead. So when we got to Kuwait and they said, uh, you know, Iraq and Kuwait, and they said, you've got to sort out the dead bodies, we were like, why are you asking us? You know what I mean? It was like the penny didn't drop. Right. Registration. What the fuck are you asking us for? It's not our job. Well, uh, actually, it is your grave registration. We were like, yeah, for the Brits, not for every fucker. So then we ended up in, uh, I was in Kuwait City on the 1st of March. Literally, we finished on. We got into a uh, Al Jahira airfield, uh, which is northwest of Kuwait City. We ended up harboring up there, and then we drove into. We got the shout that we needed to get into Kuwait City and start on the dead bodies in there, and we drove down to the Bajra Road, which is what you call the Highway of Death, I think. Drove down to there to the Brits, we call it the Bajra Road. We drove down there, and it was utterly carnage everywhere. I mean, fucking hell, it was a mess. There were still vehicles on fire. There was vehicles smoking. Uh, you know, there, there was probably bodies everywhere. Uh, and the, 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 I think the American cavalry units, your tankies and our tankies, had uh, all your engineers or our engineers had a big dozer blade on the front of their vehicle and they smashed right through it and cleared the road like that. So you could drive down the highway of death, but everything got pushed to the left and the right. Well, it was our job to go in there. And, and you know, the American military team, military affairs team was there as well. They were, you know, finding the dead bodies in there and bringing them out. Uh, so when we got there that morning, the other three teams had, had met up with the three teams because, uh, you know, there was only 32 of us there. So we had the three teams of eight-man uh, teams. Uh, and then they turned around to my team and said, look, it's pointless as all of us being here. We've got the Americans here. We've got the Brits there. You lot do that. And they said to my team, you used to do Route 6, which is the like the ring route around Kuwait City. Uh, so it starts off at the Baj Road, I think, and goes all the way around to the south of Kuwait City, uh, which would probably take it south. And then if you went any further, you'd go down to Kafuji, which would be down on the border before you go back into Saudi Arabia. And uh, so we spent the week going out in that area, just collecting Iraqi dead bodies and burying them. Uh, I, I met the American military affair teams once or twice, aren't they? And they had uh, a Iraqi religious bloke, whereas we didn't bother. I mean, it, it's looking back now, but we just dug an hole and threw them in. Yeah. You know, big, yeah. big and old, and if we had lots of them, we would then call up the Royal Engineers. They'd turn up with a bucket, uh, they put all the, they scoop the bodies up. We put them in a pile. Sometimes you were carrying the bits, but most times you would, you know, they would drag the vehicle, throw the body on the back of a trailer, make mounds of them, and then this engineer vehicle would come and push them into the ground, make an hole, which you can't really do on bedrock. So you can probably take about a meter of soil off. And all we did was we had a mound of bodies. And then basically they'd push them in, flatten them out, and put the soil over them. And that's what that's all we did. Because as I said before, you know, Iraqi dead, we just had no time for. British, yeah, Iraqi weren't interested in uh, at the time, because I just think that was the way you're conditioned is the enemy's bad. I mean, kill the enemy, right. so what? Right. You know what I mean? And so we're 
sorting out the the you know the bombings and the uh, Apache helicopters and the B fifty two bombers, any all the destruction these uh, aircraft had caused. We were picking up all the bits of that. Uh, you know, and, and through that, we got to the 7th of March. So we did that for seven days uh, in Kuwait City. Each night, we'd drive back to where the brigade was. Uh, and you had to be out Kuwait City by half past three in the afternoon because it was mm -hmm. like the fucking Wild West. Honest, it was like Dodge City, probably right. when Doc Holliday and fucking Billy the Kid were there. It was like a <laughs> fucking gunfight. You couldn't trust anyone behind you. Everyone was looting weapons, firing them off. I mean, we were on one position, sorting bodies out, and some fucking idiots got on, a, on an ACAT gun and started firing it across our heads. You know, so when you're in these, these things exploding, and we all at the deck, sent a couple of the guys over to see what was his, and you got some people pissing about on an ACAT gun. Uh, them sort of like big Aucklanders, what you have on the, the ships. Yeah. You know, well, they had them on British ships at one time. And, uh, but yeah, people were just picking bombs up, firing them off, throwing grenades. And uh, so they wanted all the bricks out. There was no electricity in Kuwait City. There was no water. Uh, so they wanted us out by half past three in the afternoon, which give us about, I mean, I, I can remember that time of the year, it was getting dark by about, well, it was getting dusk by about quarter past four in the morning, in the afternoon. Quarter past, so by half past five, it was pretty dark. And if they had no lights anyway, which they didn't, uh, you know, Kuwait City was pretty dark. Right. You know, so trying to get out of there. And he had minefields everywhere. Uh, he had big tiller minefields, the tanks. Mm -hmm. Right on. They were like like driving through a uh, a marsh and you had all these upright stems, you know, just all over the show. So I suspect if you're driving in a, a, a tank or an armoured vehicle, it'd probably be too late by the time you'd realise. Whereas we were driving and you know, luckily for us, we, uh, we we literally came across this minefield and stopped and reversed back, only because we saw these weird aerials popping out the ground. And then uh, another night we were driving back and you heard this whoosh. We saw the plane flying over us. And then uh, and right in front of us as we're driving, this massive big pallet just hit the deck in front of us with the uh, parachute, came down, and it was just full of, American MREs, this fucking big pallet, what nearly crushed us, was just full of American MREs. And we just took one look at and think, fuck this, we're having this. So we cut all the banding off and grabbed loads of <laughs> you I, mean, know. I reckon the Americans must have been over the moon, they didn't fucking have to yeah. eat it. It was, it was a novelty. So we cut the straps off. Through fucking, you couldn't get any more boxes in the back of our Land Rover, uh, and it drove back to Four Armoured Brigade. This thing nearly fucking killed us. If it would have landed on our Land Rover, it would have crossed the Land Rover. Well, see, you know what I mean. And that, and that, all we had was a plane, and it was literally the wash as it come down when we actually heard it, and it right. hit the road in front of us. Yeah, so uh, it was it in mess out there. I've got to admit, that is, around, I bet you you ain't good too. Uh, the MRAs weren't bad, were they? Different. Yeah, they different. Like, yeah, you eat, the way you're meeting gravy is, or you're yeah. meeting biscuits. <laughs> you know? yeah, some of them was a novelty. I used to like the uh, the red sauce. You know, the paprika. What is it? Yeah, the, uh, no, hot sauce, tobacco, Tabasco yeah. sauce. Yeah. 
Yeah, I used to like that. And then they... They would put. I think uh, you got to the point where I was putting it on my breakfast cereals. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, but the good thing is they give you a little bit of bubble gum and a cigarette. Yeah, yeah. Whereas we didn't have any of that in ours. All we had in ours was chocolate bars and boiled yeah. sweets. Oh yeah. Well, you know see, I mean? all the chocolate had melted. Yeah. Right. I, mean? I just wanted something cold to drink. I can remember everything, even the coldness, wasn't cold enough for me. I just wanted to drink. Something where you could see the, you know, the cold just running down the tin, and I can remember it. I just couldn't find that coldness. Uh, on the seventh of March, the cold is in. We all met up. The three teams met up again, and then we drove in convoy down, and we robbed all this kit. Well, we should say liberated it. You know what I mean? We liberated fucking tons of pistols and machine guns, thinking <laughs> that we'd be able to have them. You know what I mean? As if any fucker is going to be able to keep all that kit. Right. And we just had, we just had trailers full of fucking weapons. Fucking <laughs> weapons and ammunition. So y'all had and, uh, plenty of uh, MREs. Y'all had plenty of weapons. Man, y'all were set. Y'all yeah. Were, yeah. For a while, <laughs> for, as mercenaries, realising we were coming back into normality, you know, We'd all been pirates of the Caribbean out there, but as soon as you come back into the you know, back into the forces, and I can remember we went down and we got to the Kuwaiti border post between Kuwait and uh, Saudi Arabia, and we drove up and they checked one. They must have seen one of the weapons in the back of the trailers, and this bigger uh, this big argument erupted between us and them, uh, as in the you know the Kuwaiti resistance or whoever's man in the post. So that kicked off there, ended up a like, bit of a standoff, and then we finally got through, drove down to Al Jabail, because Kuwait to Al Jabail is a bit of a drive, to be right. honest. We drove through Kafaji, and, you know, the Americans had an hard fight in Kafaji. Uh, you know, the, the, it was the only time where the Iraqis had actually attacked any of the Allied forces, so they attacked the American Marine Corps. I think they lost about 20-odd servicemen were killed there the Americans, when they attacked it. So that was, you know, before the land war. Uh, so we drove through Kafaji. You drive through it on the way back from Kuwait, going down to Al Jabal on the coastal road. Uh, so we were driving through there and was pretty amazed because the place was had been knocked around a bit. Uh, drove through there all the way back down to Al Jabal. As soon as we got to Al Jabal, they took all the weapons off us. They made us... Phil Payton work out mm. first, get all the serum numbers <laughs> and hand it all in. And then they took all the bayonets off us. And, and it was like one of them cartoons where you see the guy says, you know, hand your weapon in. It was like clink, clink, yeah. clink. <laughs> and I, I kept back a few pistols. And I used to go up to Camp 13, which is American. And I didn't realise at the time the CBs were based there. Oh, yeah. I saw them down at Algebio Docks. And, you know, they were one of the units, what was really, you know, was one of the forefront units about the, the whole thing of Gulf War Syndrome. And uh, so they were the same unit. So I used to go across there some evenings and just sit down and have a drink with them and, you know, have a coffee, have a chat with them, you know, talk bollocks as you do. And uh, literally go over there, each, you know, every other night. So I had these pistols and I, I liked military. I liked badges and buttons. So I'd be swapping these pistols uh for american uh cat badges uh all sorts of crap you know patches cat badges oh yeah we do the same thing 
Yeah, I mean, even on ships, we would be like, "Hey, we'll give you a lighter. Hey, we'll give you a ball cap." Yeah, well, and it, it's the same stuff, Roy. Yeah, I, I, I hate to cut the interview. No, it's okay. I, I have to. Hey, but this is what I want to do. I want to bring you back on in, in about a month and, and everything. Okay. I, it is very exciting to talk with you. And I appreciate you enlightening us on how y'all's VA system works. And, I mean, I know all the listeners are probably going to be pissed off for you because I, it's just not fair, you know, especially what y'all have been through and what y'all have done. And we thank you 100%. And I want to thank everybody for being on Facebook Live and, and everything. And they're going to hear this podcast. We're going to get it out everywhere because i want everybody to to know what a fantastic the brits have been to us and how much of a pleasure it was for having you on my show and no i appreciate it and the pledge is mine kevin yes yeah, sir been... and we're gonna stay in touch we know how to do it now i want to yeah, stay in, yeah i want to stay in touch with yeah. you but stay on real quick Guys on Facebook, I want to end this. I want to thank y'all very much. Y'all have a great day. And thank you from me. I want to thank Roy Selstrom for coming on to this program. It was very exciting to talk to him and somebody from on the other side of the world who was there fighting with us during the Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Y'all please go to my website, at goal4sideeffects.wordpress.com or email me at kevinsimon at goal4sideeffects.com.